Welcome to the All Souls Episcopal Parish in Berkeley's sermon podcast. Today is the 19th Sunday after Pentecost, and we hear from the Reverend Emily Boring as she preaches from the lectionary, which this week was Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. As always, you can find more sermons or information about All Souls on our homepage, which is allsoulsparish.org. The summer I was 16, I went on a mission trip with my best friend's youth group. For a week, we volunteered at a camp for kids with disabilities. It was an amazing place. Folks who couldn't walk could do zip lines and ride horses. Every gathering had noise-canceling headphones and ASL interpreters. It felt radical, inclusive, and liberatory closer to the way God intends the world to be. It was also problematic. The camp was run by fundamentalist Christians, and each evening the director, known as Father Louis, gathered all of the volunteers around a campfire to preach. Repent of your selfishness and neglect, he'd roar. We're called to serve the least of God's people. Each time you fail a less able brother or sister or treat them unkindly, God is watching you. What Father Louis didn't know was that back home, I had a less able brother. Aaron is two years younger, and he has developmental and intellectual disabilities. Many of you will meet Aaron when my family comes to visit at Christmas. You'll marvel how someone with so few words can hold so much joy. You'll see how he walks into a church and gets still and quiet, a rare occurrence, tuned into some special wavelength of holiness. But that summer, and a lot of my childhood, life with Aaron was hard. Without words for his feelings, Aaron was physically violent. I lived in fear for his safety and mine. I was also a teenager, confused, angry, and tired. I resented the idea of service. Often, then and since, I put my needs first. So when Father Louis preached that sermon, I felt personally exposed and convicted. I tallied the times I'd ignored my brother or treated him unkindly. I pictured God up there, keeping score. Those sermons took the guilt I already felt and put the weight of a church behind it, making me feel selfish, flawed, and ashamed. I don't fault the intentions of that preacher. He wanted, as I do, to build a world where vulnerable people get the care and respect they need. But his call for accountability left no space for compassion. There was no room to acknowledge that we're human. Often we want to do good, but fear, weariness, self-protection, or unknowing gets in our way for reasons inside our control and outside it, excusable and less excusable, unconscious or consciously chosen. 
we do not, cannot, perfectly do God's work, whatever that would mean. I share this story because I think it's a version of an experience that many of us have had. How many times has God's name been invoked to shame or guilt you into doing something? How many times have you performed some act of service, not because you really wanted to, but because you feared how you'd be seen if you didn't? How many times have you been told that doing God's work must look a certain way, that you must act, speak, or love in one narrow manner in order to be good? I think we need to hold these questions in our minds as we approach today's gospel, the parable of the wicked tenants. This is a story about what is demanded of us as stewards of God's kingdom. What do we owe in exchange for the gifts God has given? It's the story of people who fail to uphold a promise. And it's easy to turn it into a simple lesson of judgment and blame. To recap, in this parable, a wealthy landowner plants a vineyard, moves abroad, and sends a group of slaves back to collect his rent. The tenants of the vineyard seize the slaves, beat them, and kill them. The landlord sends another group of slaves. The tenants do the same thing. Finally, the landlord sends his own son, thinking that the tenants will respect him. And this is where we begin to doubt the landlord's common sense. Because sure enough, the tenants do kill the son, hoping to get his inheritance. Jesus responds with a grim verdict. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. It's a brutal parable, one that sociocultural difference or historical context can't soften. I tried my best to get out of preaching it by switching dates with Emily or Phil. (laughs) You're lucky your calf is torn. (laughs) But I think the difficulty is deliberate. The parable is meant to shock us towards strong moral response. The tenants are bad guys. They deserve to be punished. Don't be like them. That's what's happening in the parable. But as with many of Jesus' teachings, there's another story unfolding outside the parable between Jesus and his audience. In this case, the audience is the Pharisees, members of a sect of Judaism that held intellectual, political, and moral power. The parable takes place within a mounting showdown between Jesus and these religious leaders. The Pharisees set Jesus riddle after riddle about divorce, taxes, interpretations of Moses' law. Jesus outsmarts them and offers riddles of his own. This moment is significant because it's the point in the sequence when Jesus' audience finally really gets what he's saying. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. And then, they still fail to change their actions. 
Their instinct in the face of truth-telling is to silence it, to arrest Jesus and cling to their power and their beliefs. It's very easy to condemn those Pharisees. After all, the parable has set us up to equate them with the wicked tenants. And there's a long history of people using this passage and others in Matthew to promote anti-Semitic thought. But remember the story I opened with. Remember the times in your own life when you were given an invitation to do what you sensed was God's work, but you didn't or couldn't follow through. So why were the Pharisees unwilling or unable to respond to Jesus's message? There are the usual answers, power, status, empire, religious zeal. But how about a simpler one? Fear. Until I prepped for this sermon, I forgot that this parable falls in the Holy Week narrative, the same chapter in which Jesus arrives in Jerusalem amid cheering crowds and palms. Turmoil is mounting. Day by day, public support for Jesus Messiah, son of David, grows. The Pharisees feel pressured and trapped, caught between their desire to maintain religious order and their fear of angry mobs. So they do what many of us do when we're panicked. They cling to what's known. They get defensive. They resist change. And who are we to blame them for that? This is where I got stuck in a lot of drafts of this sermon. I felt my thoughts veering, as they often do, toward compassionate curiosity. I believe, and people less naive than me seem to agree, that humans generally want to do good. We would choose love, justice, and kindness if we could. So when someone doesn't choose those things, we owe it to them and to ourselves to ask, why? But then I pause and wonder, am I being too easy? Am I letting the Pharisees off the hook? Am I condoning the same ignorance and intolerance that just a few chapters later will lead to Jesus's death? Because the truth is, there's harm and violence in this story, both within the parable and outside of it. The brutality of the wicked tenants toward the slaves is meant to show us something. When we fail to act generously and justly, innocent people often bear the cost. In its own way, then, this passage brings me to the same kind of question that Father Louis's campfire sermon did all those years ago. What is the balance? between compassion and accountability? When does asking why we fail to do God's work become an excuse for our inaction? When are we called to respect our fears, our needs, our human limitations? And when are we called to do what we think we cannot do, to choose God's work no matter what? 
I think these questions come up over and over in our daily encounters. Think of a time when a colleague said something racist or sexist and you didn't speak up because you were afraid of retaliation or worried you'd make it worse. Remember a time when you saw someone on the street asking for money and you crossed to the other side to get away. You were overwhelmed and busy on your way to some other important, even charitable task. Every time, there was a reason. And every time, harm was done. Today's parable doesn't resolve these tensions. Instead, it illuminates the questions we need to be asking as we try, in the words of St. Paul, to press on toward the goal of the kingdom of God. But, even as we hold this unresolved tension, I still believe that compassion is the ultimate answer. Compassion toward self and others is what doing God's work means. To give just one example, we could see today's parable as the story of persistent human failure. Three times the tenants do the wrong thing. Or we could see it as the story of a compassionate God who keeps returning to give us another chance. This landlord, this God, is so willing to see the good in us that he sends his own son, trusting that this time around we'll do it right. God demands great things of us because God already believes the best of us. Compassion and accountability are one and the same. Which brings me to my final brief topic for you, stewardship. October is our month of giving. We are called to pledge time, talent, and treasure in service of this community. Many preachers would use today's parable to make veiled threats. <laughs> Give as though your landlord may return at any moment, or else. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I want to leave you with some questions of compassionate accountability. What do you have in abundance? How might your gifts be multiplied if you share? What would it mean to give, not because you think you ought to, but because you genuinely want to? What kind of giving would balance sacrifice and joy? You have something special here at All Souls, something I haven't found in other places. In this space, I feel invited to learn and be challenged, but from day one, you made me feel like I was already enough. You call each other to have the tough conversations about power, privilege, politics, race, reparations. You tell truth but you do it with and for respect of all people. In this space, 
we participate in centuries-old rituals that celebrate God's eternal presence. But we also uplift the joys, sorrows, prayers, and thanksgivings that are part of this human community here and now. In other words, All Souls is a place where tension feels vital, not destructive, where we balance vision and enoughness, where we live in the space between who we are and who we could become. That, to me, is what it means to enact God's kingdom. That is worth giving for. <laughs>